Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're going to start, and uh, the the topic for today is really Sukkot. This is uh, we we just finished with Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur was yesterday. It was awesome, and the uh, the midrash says that these four days between um, Yom Kippur and Sukkot are days without sin, which is very very deep, and I don't even pretend to understand the depths of it. But on the simplest simplest level, what it's saying is that. That, that basically everyone's so busy with their, with their lives and their families and their work and also um, uh, building the sukkah and getting the, the, uh, the lulav and the esrog and everything like that that they don't have time to do anything wrong. So even on the simplest level, it's, it's an appealing idea and I'm sure there's way more to it than that. But um, anyway, so I want to talk about sukkahs and especially sukkahs in light of Yom Kippur. And, uh, and begin with, uh, by trying to explain or, or, or to give over a teaching from Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach on the subject that I think is, is an awesome teaching. It's an awesome teaching, and I'm going to try to explain it as best I can. Um, and it goes like this. If you want to know how much you were forgiven on Yom Kippur, right, because everyone... You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit abstract. You go through this process, and then it's sort of like, so everything's cool? You know, like, like what happens exactly? We're, we're okay? You know? So, so if you want to know how much you were forgiven on Yom Kippur, the test is, this is Reb Shlomo speaking, the test is, how at home do you feel in the sukkah? That's the end of the teaching. So if you want to know how much you were forgiven on Yom Kippur, how at home do you feel in the sukkah? That's, that's the test. Okay, so I'm going to try to explain it. And um, I think this is what he meant. And, um, and, and in order to do that, we're going to have to just talk about what a sukkah is exactly. And we'll have to talk about a little bit about Yom Kippur. And we'll also have to talk about what it means to be in a relationship. Because that's really the headline of this talk, and may even be the title of this talk, which is basically what it means to... that Basically, the idea is this, that sukkus is the fixing... Bless you. Sukkus is the fixing of the relationship between us and God. Right? Um, and I'll explain, I'll explain what that means. So, let's start with... Let's start with the whole idea of the sukkah. Okay? So, so what is a sukkah? A sukkah is basically a hug from God. That's what it is. And that's, that's, that's reflected, you know, in the first letter of the word sukkah, you have the letter samach. And a samach is a circle. And when you hug someone, Reb Shlomo brings this down, when you when you hug someone, what you're doing is you're making a samach around them. Okay, you're making the letter samach. That's what a hug is. A hug is a samach. And that's what the sukkah is. The sukkah is a samach. Okay, the sukkah is a big hug. Now, by the way, I saw this written in like a Dvar Torah in the name of the Ari. Okay, so I didn't see this inside in the Kisve Ari, so I'll leave that up to the learned Kabbalists out there to confirm that, but it's a, this is an old thought, this, this idea of the sukkah being a samach, the sukkah being a hug, rather. Okay? So, so basically what we're doing 
is we're figuring out basically a teaching of Reb Shlomo, which is that um, if you want to know how much you were forgiven on Yom Kippur, the question is, how at home do you feel in the sukkah? Okay, so, so what does that mean? What is that correlation? So, so if you look, if you look in, in Ashrei, Ashrei goes through all the letters of the Olive Bays, and there's one, there, there's one irregularity which the Talmud points out, which is very interesting, which is the letter Nun is missing. Because the letter Nun stands for Nofel, or Nofal, which means to fall. So they didn't want to hint at the idea of the Jewish people falling spiritually in terms of their connection to Hashem. So, they, so it got left out, this letter Nun. But what's the letter right after Nun? It's Samach. Okay, so what they did was, and you can open up a sitter and you can look at the way Ashrei is printed. You'll see what I'm saying. So that it says something ama- amazing, the way it's constructed. It says, Somech noflim. Which means that the way the Samech is used, Somech means to uplift. Noflim, there's your nun, the fallen. So that's how the nun is sneaked in. It's not a freestanding thing that the Jews fall, but in the, if it's going to be mentioned at all, it's only going to be mentioned in the same breath that that falling is uplifted. Do you hear how beautiful that is? So the nun is only mentioned in the context of the fixing of the nun. So mech noflim. Again, there's the samech of no, of, 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 of somech. The samech of the sukkah. Which is now, and now we can return back to what Reb Shlomo was saying, something very beautiful. Which is that when you hug someone, not only are you making a samach around them, but in terms of your body language, what you're communicating to them on a soul level is, I'm not going to let you fall. You know, that's why, you know, did you ever hear anyone say, I need a hug? I need a hug. Or did you ever get a hug and it's like, you know, like a thousand pounds of medicine? Why is a hug so healing? Because what's being communicated to you on a soul level, in a very deep and beautiful way, is I'm not going to let you fall. Right? You're safe and you're protected. You're safe and you're protected. And who doesn't want to feel that way? And who doesn't want to feel that way in the ultimate sense that it's Hashem Himself who's giving the hug? Right? And that's what a sukkah is. Okay. So now we have to talk about hugonomics right now. <laughs> we have to get into a little bit more because they're all different types of hugs. Okay? And this is, again, we're trying to explain Reb Shlomo's teaching. What does it mean that if you want to know how much you were forgiven on Yom Kippur, the test is, how at home do you feel in the sukkah? Okay? So now we're ready for the next step. You see, I'm sure everyone's had this experience on one side or the other. But right now, we're the... Right now, we're the one being hugged. Since we're in the sukkah, and the sukkah is a hug, we're the one who's being hugged. So, imagine yourself being hugged, okay? So, so, I know I've had this experience, I'm sure everyone has this experience. You hug someone, and they're standing stiff as a board. (laughs) They don't want to be hugged. (laughs) That's just what it is. And I'm sure we've all been on both sides of that, you know? You know, you've hugged someone and they're just stiff like a board. They're not into it, you know? And that's just what it is, you know? And 
you know, like the the at the happy minion, you know, a lot of the guys hug guys, you know, and it's just a sign of brotherhood and camaraderie. And you know, you, you get it, you know. Some people will give you a hug back, and it's like an awesome hug, and they want to be hugged. And there are other people, they just, they don't want to be hugged. <laughs> and that's what it is, you know. And we all know that even in a relationship, which is a more intimate relationship, there are times when you want to be hugged and there are times when you don't want to be hugged because that's your feelings about how you're feeling about the other person at the time, you know. So even in a context where you do want to hug and often hug back, at that moment you're not feeling it. Okay. So now we're getting to the depths of Reb Shlomo's teaching. So again, let's repeat it. If you want to know how much you were forgiven on Yom Kippur, how at home do you feel in the sukkah? So, Hashem is hugging you. Right? How are you standing stiff like a board? Because you don't want to be hugged so much? Or are you hugging back? Okay, so we still have to explain it a little bit more. Because now this is going back to the essence of what this whole talk is. Which is that sukkah is the rectification, it's the fixing, it's the restoration of the relationship with God. You see? You see, I was giving this over to someone just at the, the coffee shop before, uh, before coming here. And, and he added an element, which I, I thought was beautiful and, and correct. You see, you know, sometimes you have a heart-to-heart with someone and it's cathartic and you are able to resolve some issues and move back through, move past through some things, make some breakthroughs, right? And sometimes you have a heart-to-heart and you just leave more bummed out (laughs) because, you know what, the person didn't get it or you didn't get it or you feel judged, or you feel misunderstood, or it just, it didn't help, basically. It didn't help, right? So that's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is that heart-to-heart, right? And now, the question is, did it restore the relationship so that you're hugging back it's the hug after a fight, and we're going to show, this is not, I'm not just speaking metaphorically right now. The hug after the fight, I'm going to go back to the Jews in Egypt, and, 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 or in, in the desert, rather. You'll see there are historical precedents to all this, and the Vilna Gon discusses this. I'm just sort of, I'm, I'm starting with the, the point, and then I'll work backwards to some of the sources, um, classically speaking. Historically speaking. Um, but again, after the heart-to-heart, which can get a little stern sometimes, right? Did you make a breakthrough on the issues? Or after the heart-to-heart, do you feel more alienated? Oh, that's how you feel? That's what it is? Right? So if you made the breakthrough on Yom Kippur, then it's this opening that's been made and it's like, oh, I'm so glad we got past that stuff. I'm so glad we got past that stuff. I'm so happy to be back with you. And then when you're in the sukkah, then you're hugging back. Or then when you're being hugged, you're not standing stiff like a board. When you're being hugged, you're hugging back. 
And that's the test of how forgiven you were on Yom Kippur. Because that means that the relationship itself was restored. Does everyone get it? Does everyone get it? Because this is like, this is like really nothing abstract here. We're talking pure relationship dynamics. And this is why it's so important. Because, you see, the relationship with Hashem, and that was sort of like the major theme. Well, that's basically my major theme in general. Um, in life, I guess. But, but it's what I try to talk about more directly on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur uh, in, 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 the, in the different talks that I gave. Was, was really, you know, sometimes... See, this is sometimes why learning holy books is, is difficult. Because, um, especially when you're learning older holy books, classic holy books, because there are certain assumptions that the rabbis are making, that the great rabbis are making, that they go, of course you already know this. I don't have to begin to even tell you the fundamentals here. And they're all the very special, like, you know, adornments and very fine, beautiful things but the problem is, is that those things that they just assume that you know, that you must know, have often been lost. And then it's up to later generations, like our generation, you know, to say, wait a second, we've got to go back to the basics. Let's, let's do the basics again, because we don't know those things that you're assuming we know. You know, and then once you get the basics, then you can return to those books and go, oh my goodness, there's that level, and there's that level, and there's that level. But otherwise, it's just like a roof that's floating, and it's just abstraction. Okay? So, so what is the most primary basic of everything? Of all of Torah, what's the most primary basic? It's v'ahavta. Listen, let me explain. You know, we say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Then we say, and we whisper that. By the way, one of the great moments of Yom Kippur is the fact that we say, It's the only time all year that we shout it out. All year long we're whispering it. And there's a beautiful medrash, which is that Moshe Rabbeinu got that prayer, Blessed is his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever, got that um, at Mount Sinai from the angels. Basically, Moshe was like, well, that's a really good prayer. Okay, I think we're going to take that one. (laughs) But it was the angel's prayer. So it's like, all right, let's see, how can we work this out? Okay, we're going to take it, but we're going to whisper it. So that's that's what it's going to be. But on Yom Kippur, because we're like angels, we're not eating and we're not doing all the various human activities, because we're not doing that, we're like angels, and so therefore we can shout it out just like the angels shout it out. But it's only once a year, okay? Okay. So, oh, lost my train of thought. Yes, thank you. Viahavta, thank you. So, so Shema Yisrael. So, so this whole Brook Shem Kavod Machuso, is not in the Torah. It may be a Pasuk in the Torah somewhere, I don't know, or in Tanakh somewhere. But, what I'm trying to tell you is that where you see the Shema written, it goes, the next word after Echad is V'yahavta. Okay, it goes straight from Shema Yisrael, Shema Lokino, Shema Echad, to V'yahavta, right? And you shall love. Okay? So, so, so in other words, we're talking fundamentals right now. 
we've got the, the statement, the ultimate boiling down of Judaism into one line. The oneness of God. God is everywhere. He's in everything. He transcends this world. He fills this world. Right? And the very next word, the very next word in the Torah is, and you should love Him. Meaning to say, the entire structure of all of the mitzvahs, of all of the 613 mitzvahs, the entire thing is built on the loving Him. You want to realize His oneness in this world? It's got to be coming from a place of love. And by the way, one of the most famous, widely known, and maybe underappreciated gematrias is Echad, is gematria 13, and Ava, love, is also 13. Okay? In other words, a direct correlation between oneness and love. And by the way, we said this over, I was privileged, my wife and I were privileged to be married by um, Reb Shlomo, and uh, under the chuppah, he said, this Torah, he said in the name of the Sakachover Rebbe, that was the grandson of the Akutska Rebbe, he said that if you put all 613 mitzvahs on one side and the mitzvah of marriage on the other side, it would either, I don't remember what he said, we have to check the videotape, <laughs> either said it would, it would outweigh them or it would equal them. Okay? So I thought to myself, like, why would marriage be equal to the 613 mitzvahs? Right? So, I'm sure there are many, many reasons, and I'm sure the reason that I'm about to give you was not the Sakachevers reason, <laughs> who said the Torah to begin with, but let me just give you my explanation anyway. Which is that, when you have a marriage, what happens? Two people become one. Right? And those two people, God willing, make a baby. Right? So those two, po- pe- those two people become one, and from that oneness comes more oneness. Do you hear? Two people become one, and from that oneness comes more oneness. Meaning the baby. Right? So, in other words, there's a unification, a progressive unification that's taking place. And what's the whole idea of the mitzvahs? The whole idea of the mitzvahs is that we're revealing the oneness of God. So, all of that is driving toward a recognition of the oneness of God. And what is marriage doing? It's a drive toward more oneness. Do you hear? Okay, but again, it's all based on, and, you know, again, in terms of what we just described, the dynamics of that, Ava and Echad being equal oneness and love, that very much ties into what we were just discussing, if you think it through for a moment. Okay, so, so, so it's built on love. It's built on love. Now listen to this. Rav Shlomo said this very beautiful thing. He said in our generation, he was talking about the tshuva process, the return to Hashem process. And he says in our generations, in our generation, there's, there's two forms, okay? There's the Eitz Hadas level, the tree of knowledge level, and there's the Eitz Chaim level, the tree of life level of returning, Okay? What is the Eitz Hadas? And remember, whenever you have a battle between the tree of knowledge and the tree of life, the tree of life is always infinitely the better approach. Okay? So let's start off with what's the Eitz Hadas level, the tree of knowledge level. Okay, so there's a couple that's become estranged. 
Okay, obviously we're talking about us and Hashem right now. There's a couple that's become estranged. But, but imagine it in terms of human beings right now. Um, and they want to get back together. They, they, want to, they want to repair the relationship. Okay? Again, we're talking about relationships. They want to repair the relationship. And uh, they both want to repair it. And they see each other again. And they've been distant from one another. They see each other again. And they say, well, the, the person says, well, I did this thing wrong, and I did that thing wrong, and I did this thing wrong, and I did that thing wrong. Okay, listen, maybe all 100% true. And also, 100% necessary in its right time to discuss and to resolve. But it's still on the tree of knowledge level. You see, a lot of people come, we'll get to what the tree of life level is in a moment. A lot of people come to Yom Kippur and it's all, alright, I guess I'm standing before God and I'm going down the laundry list. I did this thing wrong and I did that thing wrong and I did this thing wrong and I did that thing wrong. Okay. Alright. It's not nothing. It's not nothing. But it's not what we need. It's not what we need, and it doesn't address the fundamentals of the relationship. Now let's talk about what the tree of life level is. The couple sees each other, and they've been estranged, and they want to get back together. And what do they do? They run and they hug each other. They run and they hug each other. I'm so glad to see you again. I'm so glad to see you again. I want to be close. I want to be close. How did we get into this situation to begin with? I don't know how we got into this situation. But let's not fall into this again. Okay, how can we make sure that we don't fall into this thing again? Okay, I did this thing wrong, and I did that thing wrong. Do you hear? It's... (laughs) If it sounds like the same thing to you, man, you gotta... You gotta... You gotta email me, please. Email me, okay? Torah on iTunes.com. If you didn't get that point, please email me because it means that you got an issue. And I say that with love. Because the, the thing is, the thing is, is that in a relationship, it's got to be an actual relationship. And you actually have to, God is, God is out there, he's here, right, he's in this room. He's in this room right now, and if you're listening, he's in your car, he's in wherever you are right now, he's in your room right now. And that's not, oh, who am I that he's in my room? Where else is he going to be? He's everywhere. You're never not with him. And that's, that is the breakthrough that everyone has to make. Because that is the fundamental of all of Torah. And you only get to that place from the word hafta, from loving. If it's not coming from love, then there's a disconnect. Because otherwise, and here's, let's go into this point. What is the problem? What is the issue? I said the person has an issue. So what is the issue? So, you know what? You don't have to email me. Just listen to this point, Okay. <laughs> Rabbi Nachman talks about, we, we discussed this on the second day of Rabbi Nachman 
brings something, or at least I saw it in his name. It's kind of a famous, uh, famous story in Hasidic uh, lore. You see, many Rebbe's daven by themselves. We say, B'yechidus. That means they, they, they just daven by themselves because, for whatever reason, they, they have special practices or they um, really go for a very, very long time and they don't want to bother the tzibor to make them, the community to make them wait for them. And so, it turns out many Rebbe's historically have daven by themselves. That's fine. I'm sure at different times they daven with the community, but, but, but that's what it is. And there are many stories about Hasidim who have snuck into Rebbe's rooms and hid in the closet or hid under the bed or hid under the table in order to observe, observe what it is that the Rebbe is doing. Because they want to know, maybe there's some special practice and I can do it or, you know, they're communicating with God and I can basically witness this Mount Sinai moment. And so you've got many stories like that. Okay. So, so with that in mind, here's how the story goes. And like I said, this is, this is said in order to make fun. I, and it's not clear to me whether this is an actual story or, or if Rabbi Nachman made this up in order to illustrate a point or if it's even from Rabbi Nachman, I'm not even sure. But that's, that's who I, I saw it from. But anyway, let's, uh, let's just tell the story already. So there was a Rebbe who davened by himself. He was one of these Rebbe's who did that. And he heard a little commotion outside the door. Okay? And he heard like, you know, like a pitter-patter, like footsteps of the Hasidim tiptoeing up to the door. And then he heard a little scratching against the door, like they're pressing against the door to put their ear to the door in order to listen to the Rebbe so that they make sure that they're following everything that's, that's going on. And the Rebbe, you know, understood, of course... Of course, I'm a great Rebbe. The Hasidim are all coming to my door in order to hear everything that's going on. And this went on for nine years. For nine years. And at a certain point, the Rebbe thought, you know something? I'm going to open up the door and let the Hasidim in. And he opened up the door and he saw that there was a cat at the door. (laughs) And so Rebbe Nachman says that for the last nine years, he was praying to a cat. <laughs> because during the entire time that he was happening, really his primary focus was the fact that all the Hasidim were at the door who are really wanting to know how it is I'm so close with Hashem. <laughs> so the reason why I, I wanted to say over that, 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 that story... Like I said, this is a famous story. Is because I think that all of us in our own way suffer, or, or many of us, most of us, in our own way suffer from this same um, problem. And what I mean by that, because I'm going to change the context. I don't mean it in the way the story tells it exactly. I'm applying it in a different way. What many of us do is we have a conversation with ourself and we think that we're talking to God. But instead of the, the words going out of our mouth and rising upward in order to talk to this divine entity which is with us and is here now and is there wherever we are, there it is. 
Hashem who is before us at all times, and who exists, and who is there, instead of talking to Hashem, who is right there, we talk to ourselves. And our words are not going out of our mouths to Hashem, and up to Hashem, but our words are just going to our own brains. And we're just having a conversation with the cat. With ourselves. The words have to leave your mouth, have to be directed to Hashem, who is with us always, who is here right now. And that's the breakthrough, that is the breakthrough that creates the relationship. Otherwise, otherwise, we're stuck in the tree of knowledge. We're stuck in the tree of knowledge. It's just us and our own brains. And we feel estranged, and we say to ourselves, I'm talking to Hashem, I'm reaching out to Hashem. Why do I feel so alone? Because you're talking to the cat! You're talking to the cat at the door! Not to Hashem! Now you say, well, doesn't Hashem hear those things? He does hear those things! But it's, but it's weird. It's like, you know, can you imagine you're at a store, right? And there's the clerk. The clerk is standing behind the counter. Wants to help you. And there's like, a, you know how they have those glass cases? There's a little showcase and the, you know, like at department stores. And the clerk is standing behind that glass showcase. Can you imagine you're just talking to the glass showcase? <laughs> the clerk is standing in front of you. And you're just talking to the glass showcase. So does the clerk hear you? The clerk hears you. But, are you, but why are you talking to the glass showcase? So that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that the breakthrough, the breakthrough in terms of relationship, is getting out of this idea of talking to ourselves and thinking that we're talking to Hashem. If a person is doing that, they're very close. They're right at the door. They're an inch away from making a major breakthrough. But they have to make that breakthrough. They have to make that breakthrough. And then you might say, like, let me just tell you, one of the most satisfying prayers I've ever made in my entire life, okay? I ordered a cup of coffee. I drank the coffee. By the way, there's a slight halakhic problem with what I'm about to tell you. Because what I learned is, is that really, and I don't know if everyone holds by this, but I'm just telling you over some practical halakha right now, that, you know, after you drink a revius, that's three ounces, you say a bere nafashas, there's an after blessing for saying it. But really, you're supposed to do it if you drink three ounces like in a shot. Like, you know how people, like, will take a can of soda and they'll kind of chug it a little bit? Like, that's really, that's really a after-brucha opportunity. You do three ounces like that, like kind of chugging it, then that's really worthy of a brain of fashas. If you have a hot cup of coffee... No, I'm talking about liquid right now. This is just liquid right now. If you, if you, um, if you have a hot cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea, really, mostly you're just sipping it. So you're not really getting that shot of three ounces. Right? So, so as, as such, 
there is a minig or a shita within halacha that you wouldn't say a brain of fashos, an after blessing, after a hot cup of coffee or a hot cup of tea, because you never really did that three ounce thing at once, even though there was more than three ounces in the cup. Right? Does, does everyone hear? Okay, now some people, and I learned this from Rabbi Green, some people, and he said this over in, another, in the name of a, a rabbi who I don't, his name I don't know, he said he had the custom at the end to let it cool, because sometimes by the end of the cup, you'll have three ounces, and now that you could actually drink like that. So what he would do is he would let it cool, right? Or it just would cool under just normal daily practices. And then that he would do the three ounces with, and then he would say the brain of Pashas. He told his students, don't do that. Okay? So even within that context where you can sort of still get in the extra blessing, the after blessing, don't do that. He said, because you're going to end up making mistakes and everything like that. And he says, I, I can do it because I've, I'm basically, I know what I'm doing with that, but I don't recommend that as a practice. Okay? So as a result, it would really come out that you wouldn't say the, the after blessing, a, a brain of fashos and a hot tea or a hot cup of coffee. Okay? Okay. Now, um, I'm not a posake, but if you left your coffee for an hour or whatever it is and you return to it, and now you've got a cold cup of coffee and you've got like three ounces left to that, right? And it's just cold at that point and you're returning to it, you know, an hour or two later, whatever it is, and you just want to chug it and finish up the cup, then I would think to me, again, I'm not poskening, but I would think to me that would be a Berena Fasha's afterbrucha opportunity. Because at that point you're not playing games, or not, not that it's playing games, but you're not, you know, finally dicing the, the halacha at that point. It's just a cold drink at that point. Right? Even if it had started off as a hot drink, who cares, right? Okay. Anyway. So, okay, that was our halacha break. Now let's get back to what I was telling you. One of my most satisfying... You have a question on that? Yeah. I was just wondering, you're saying, you think you're talking to God, yeah. you're actually talking to yourself, so how, right. do, you, how do you know? Right. I'll tell you how you know. So here's an example of a moment where I knew. Okay? So, so, so I drank a cup of coffee, and then I made the brain of fashos. Right? I made the after blessing for the cup of coffee. And then I said to Hashem, to Hashem I was in my car, and by myself I said, thank you Hashem for that cup of coffee. That was delicious. It was so good. Thank you. Right? Now, I knew at that point I was absolutely talking to God. I was talking to God as though he was sitting right next to me and he had just made me the cup of coffee. And he was just there. I talked to him directly, honestly, from my heart. He was right there. I said, thank you Hashem for that cup of coffee. And the thing is, is that in a perfect world, the bracha itself is supposed to be that moment where you express, thank you, Hashem, that cup of coffee was so delicious. I really appreciate it. Right? But the thing is, is that human beings being human beings, we've... That, that's what it would mean to make a blessing with kavana, with holy intention, that you actually know what you're saying. But it's very hard to do, because even if you're saying it with kavana, it's not your own words. You know what I'm saying? It's not your own words. Can you imagine like your wife or your husband or your girlfriend or boyfriend or good friend or whatever it is gives you a present. That's very meaningful to you. And you take out a slip of paper and you say, um, uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Friend, 
uh, your generosity is greatly appreciated. <laughs> I want you to acknowledge it and recognize you as the source of the pair of earrings I just received. Right? So, <laughs> it's, even if, even if, and by the way, I'm not making fun of the blessings by any sense. But it doesn't mean that you have to stop at the blessing. And you'll know, you'll know, if you, believe me, whenever, you know, I, I was joking that I, I often describe these classes as couples therapy, you know, because it's couples therapy between us and God, you know. And the thing is, is that you're, all of us are thinking, feeling people. You'll know if you talk to God or not. Like God is there. You'll know. The, the, the point of these talks is not to make people more neurotic. You know, it's to make them less neurotic. Right? By grounding our relationship with God in a, the, the, the context of a real relationship. Which is what it has to be. Because if it isn't, it simply doesn't make any sense. And now, I want to make a transition and talk about something else. Which is on the same subject. Which is yeshiva education in America today. <laughs> Which is, I grew up not in the yeshiva system at all. I didn't grow up orthodox and everything like that. Okay? So I'm approaching this, and yet I'm in this situation where I'm raising my children in the yeshiva system. So I have a, 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 a particular perspective, which is someone who didn't grow up in the yeshiva system, watching people grow up in the yeshiva system. And I've made certain observations and they all go to what we're talking about right now in terms of the relationship, okay? One thing that I've noticed is that my children, and I see this a lot, and, I, and also I speak in day schools, um, yeshivas and places around the country and in Israel and things like that. I've spoken in a bunch of different places. And I've observed this. And I'm not saying anything bad. I'm just talking about the, the, the thrust of the educational system itself. So I'm not criticizing any people. But in terms of the, the, the educational philosophy and imperative, that I am being critical of right now. And that is, what I see is, a very successful inculcating of information. People are receiving a lot of information. Right? My nine-year-old, and I think this is even when he was eight, I think, I'm trying to think about what the exact number was. It was something insane. I want to say 14 seconds, but it may have been less, or it may have been a little bit more. But it was in seconds, my eight-year-old could say every Parsha in the entire Torah. The names of every Parsha in their proper order. In seconds, he could rattle them off. Which is awesome. That's awesome, actually. That's awesome that he could do that. And he's a very special kid, so I'm not talking about him right now. But what I'm trying to say is they've been, the yeshiva system has been very successful in terms of inculcating information. Like, do you think when I was, I still can't tell you right now, if you asked me to tell you every Parsha, I couldn't do it. And I certainly couldn't do it in order, right? And I'm, you know, I'm, studying the Torah all the time, and I'm taking it very, very seriously. I, I couldn't do that. Right? In seconds he can do it. But in terms of establishing a relationship with God, oh my goodness, if I, I give them a D, 
I'd give them a D or a D minus. I mean, and it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. And I'm seeing it with my own eyes. I'm seeing it with my own eyes. And I'll tell you something else. I spoke with someone, and I'm telling you, this is someone who actually, he's an administrator, who actually gets it. He's not one of the people who doesn't get it. Alright, that's what makes this story so devastating, okay? This is someone who's special, and who's like, you know, the, uh, the person who you'd want to hire, and who gets it, okay? I said, I said, you know something? What, what I feel like is, my child is learning the rules of baseball all day, but he's not playing any baseball. Right? Meaning, learning all the laws and all the information, but without being taught how to engage in a relationship with Hashem. That's the playing of the baseball. Right? And the person said back to me, thought about it, thought about it, and said, I'm not sure that's our job. And if I could have torn Kriya at that moment, if I could have torn Kriya, that's, that's what you do when someone dies. So whose job is it? Did he have an answer for that? Well, you know, I, I, maybe he was thinking that's the family's job. And, and, and by the way, maybe it's also the family's job. But it's got to be not only the yeshiva's job, but it's got to be the yeshiva's main job main job. Because otherwise, what, you know, like Rabbi Green once gave a, a, uh, an example of someone who, like, works out. Like, works out. But he only works out one particular muscle. <laughs> and he gave, like, a very funny example and he illustrated, he made a funny facial expression. I don't remember exactly, but I think he was like, someone who was working out their eye and it was a giant muscle in their eye and you know but like the rest of their face has not been worked out and the rest of their I mean, they've got like this giant eye or this you know like your right arm can you imagine like you only lift weights with your right arm but you're doing it like hours and hours a day like you look like a freak you look like a freak and it's like can you imagine if your if your relationship muscle has not been used at all but your information muscle has been like you know pumped up with steroids you're walking around and you're like you're you're handicapped because i tell you it's even worse it's even worse it's even worse than what i'm saying that's right you know why it's even worse talking about the tree of knowledge because then you think you know what you're talking about. Yeah, go ahead. When you were talking in the beginning about the Brazilian assuming you knew things, yes. that's how it is in Jewish school, I think. I'm a teacher of Jewish school, and I went through the Jewish school system. Yeah. They assume that you understand the fundamentals, so they're right. giving you information, but there's no why. It's all how to do it. Right. Exactly. 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 And again, just to bring it all back home, well... Well, just confirming that this is that this is actually going on, you know, and and uh, and 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 that's why Sukkot is so important, especially following 
Yom Kippur. Because Yom Kippur, if it's not done properly, becomes the hallmark of the tree of knowledge. It becomes the hallmark of the tree of knowledge. Because all it is is now, I've been living in this system with lots and lots of rules, and now the accountant is sitting, sitting down with me to go over which rules I did right and which rules I did wrong, and it's, a, it's an affirmation that this entire system is about rules. So, really, Yom Kippur can become so distorted. And, it, 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 you know, we talk about positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. Positive reinforcement is that when someone, if you want to change someone for the better, and you want to be a good parent or a good role model, you know, the thing is, is that when someone's doing something right, tell them they're doing something right. Then they know which direction to go in. So many people, parents, teachers, friends, the only time they speak up is when the other person is doing something wrong. It's all done through negative reinforcement. And it's a bummer. It's a bummer. And it ruins relationships. And it alienates people. It's like, oh, uh, you did that. Yeah, okay, yeah, I did that. Okay. So, so now, what am I? Now I'm the guy who did that. Right? Right? Because, you know, I mean, again, we talked about this on, I don't know, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, in, in the Minyan. But we really have to get past this idea of defining ourselves based on our own imperfections. You know, so many of us, if you ask us, who are you? Oh, I'm the one with this issue. Oh, I'm the one who suffers from that. That can't be how we look at ourselves. doesn't mean those things don't exist. But if that's how one perceives themselves, I'm the one who is still, you know, working on this, waiting for this thing to be resolved. That can't be how we look at ourselves. Because then we're making the ultimate crime of applying negative reinforcement to our own selves. We don't have to wait to either do it to someone else or to have someone do it to us. We're 24-7 doing it to our own selves by defining ourselves based on our imperfections. It can't be. It can't be. You know how vast each person is? Each person is vast. Each person is composed of hundreds and thousands and millions of things. Over the course of a lifetime, and a person dares to point to one thing and says, that's who you are? That's what you do? They have the chutzpah to say such a thing? Or even worse, we have the chutzpah to say such a thing to ourselves? And treat ourselves that way? Who gave yourself permission to, teach you, to, to treat yourself like that? You think, you think you belong to you? You're shepherding a piece of God through 120 years. God put a soul, a piece of Himself, inside of every single one of us. God says, shepherd this piece of me through this lifetime. Shepherd this piece of me through this lifetime. You think you have permission to talk to a piece of Hashem in that way, just because it's you and maybe no one else hears you? You have to treat yourself with beauty and with dignity. 
Because it's not just you. You know, there's a famous teaching, and this is what I just told you is an expansion of it, to the nth degree. But just to give you the, the simple teaching, I wish I could tell you who said it. That a person's face belongs to the public. It's part of the, um, what we call in, in halacha, the, 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 yeah, the, the rishis harabim. Not, not, it's not the private domain. Your face is part of the public domain. So the, the expression that a person has on their face, it's not your business if you want to walk around with a scowl. You're, 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 you are, like you know how graffiti artists vandalize public property and then you have to look at something unsightly? I mean, some graffiti is nice, but that's already art. I mean, that's already on the level of a mural. Right? But then you've seen the stuff that's just chicken scratch. That's like, why did you do that? That's just vandalism. Right? A scowl or a frown on your face when you walk around in public, it's vandalism. It's vandalism. Because it doesn't belong to you. So, so how much more so if we've got a piece of God inside of us? We've got to be very careful how we talk to ourselves. Okay, so again, let's make sure that we bring all these ideas home. The fundamental, the fundamental, the fundamental is this relationship. Is, is making the breakthrough that we're not talking to ourselves and thinking we're talking to God. Yes, just like the clerk is standing there. If you're talking to the counter, God hears it. He absolutely hears it. But it's not what Judaism is striving toward. It's not the model that Judaism is presenting. Right? It's, it's a, just a, this weird isotope. Right? And then, you, then that's the fundamental breakthrough. And what's so ironic is this, this thing that we're presenting as the fundamental breakthrough is the thing that's assumed by all the rabbis. <laughs> This is the thing that everyone is assuming that everyone else is telling you. Right? Right? Ava and Echad. Love and oneness. Love and oneness. Love and oneness. Right? And you know what? If you can't begin by loving God, because you have to make that transition from the other state, you can begin by dating God. (laughs) Just... Date God for a while, you know? You know? Allow the relationship to build. You know, there are a lot of people who have stories of getting married like this. That, uh, you know something, I wasn't really interested. But then he called me. And I didn't want to say no, I didn't want to be mean, so we went out. And then he called me again. And I didn't want to be mean, I didn't want to say no. And I didn't have a horrible time the first time, so I went out again. And then I told him I just wanted you to be friends. I didn't want to be in a relationship because I didn't want to lead him on. And so he called me again. <laughs> and we went out again. And then we became really good friends. And then I started to think, you know, something he's not so terrible. <laughs> and then he called me again. And then, you know, something he, he wouldn't leave me alone. So what did I do? I married him. I, there are many, many stories like that. Many, 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 many stories like that. And, and you know something? So... God's not going anywhere. (laughs) He's the one who's keeping us alive. He's the one who's keeping us alive. 
And he's absolutely not going anywhere. Not in this world, not in the next. So in other words, we're with Hashem forever. So all the more incentive to get the relationship right. All the more incentive. So, you know, we can't reach out in a living way, maybe. Can't talk to him like Rabbi Nachman says, like he's your best friend who's right there, right? Maybe that's a difficult step, but okay. So start by dating. You say a couple of words, a couple of words, a couple of words. Then once you get introduced and you feel a little bit more comfortable and you feel a little bit less strange, a couple more words. And then you go, oh, okay, I get it. I understand what this mode of communication is. I get it. And by the way, by the way, the irony is, just to finish up this thought on the yeshiva system, but also tied into what we're talking about right now. The irony is, if you look at all of the great Rebbe's, all of the great ones, all of the great Jews, if I say to you, what made him great? What made him great? Right? You'll say back to me, he knew the entire Torah. His knowledge of Talmud exceeded every, he was able to paskin understand Jewish law in the most exalted way. This is what almost everyone will tell me is the defining characteristic of every great person in, in Jewish history, right? I'm telling you, it's not wrong what I just said, but it's not right because it's missing a very fundamental component Again, which is assumed, which can no longer be assumed anymore in our world, which is what distinguishes every great person, and certainly every great Rebbe, is because they had the most intimate relationship with Hashem. The most intimate relationship with Hashem. And that was absolutely the foundation of everything that they did. Now, they were a great scholar on top of that. One of the reasons why their scholarship was so beautiful and so alive was because it was based on a living relationship. That's what enlivens those words and those Torahs. Because it wasn't coming from an intellectual, dry, abstract place. It was coming from a relationship that they were in the middle of. That's why their words were so great. Not because they had a bigger brain than we do. They may have also have had a bigger brain. But that alone would not have put them in the history books. It's because they have that relationship. And the more intimate, the better. The more intimate, the better. And then, everything else is based on that. Yeah. Right. And I think because we can listen to them, there's, then we know that that relationship is there. There right. may be lots of people walking around who have all that information right. that we didn't know about. Right. But because they communicated that, like yes. we listen to somebody we love. Yeah. Because we respect them. Right. We can hear them. Yes. Because of the way they present it. Right. And those available were able to, to give over. Yes. Yes. I don't know if Chabad system does any better. I don't know what their schools are like, but I get the sense that Chabad yeah. Yes, Chabad, I, Chabad is awesome. I love Chabad, and Chabad had a huge influence on my own life. They really, I mean, really, um, 
you know, I started going to Reb Shlomo's shul on 79th Street when I was 14. And Reb Shlomo basically, through the stories of all the Rebbe's and the Tzadikim, really made me understand what that, or at least in my own small way, what it means to have a relationship with God. Because my Jewish education, or the real essence of my Jewish education from the time I was a child, was these Hasidic stories. I started reading Hasidic stories when I was eight years old. You know, from the Chabad uh, uh, magazines, right? The children's magazines. So that to me was the, that, that was the foundation of my Jewish education. It started, I was super fortunate, super duper fortunate that I started with the concept of relationship. Right? And then all the halacha and everything like that came much later in my life. You know? But, um, but Chabad is awesome in terms of that. And I'll tell you one of the ways that they're most successful in terms of breaking through in the, in the, in the way that other systems fail. Because they make, as a hallmark, Avas Yisrael, loving your fellow Jew. And they go out and with their hands and with their feet and with their mysterious nefesh and with their efforts, not with words, but with actions, they're out there, they're putting tefillin on people, they're building sukkahs, they're shaking lulas of estrigs, they're putting menorahs on the top of their cars and driving around the neighborhood so that other Jews should be able to at least be reminded that it's Hanukkah. They're doing public lightings, they're having parties, they're reaching out to people who aren't as connected. And that is relationship. Because basically, when you're reaching out to God's children, you're reaching out to God. What could be more of a relationship? Yeah, so they're awesome. And they get it. And they avoid this major pitfall. This major pitfall. And you know something? Listen. One of the things that I really admire and respect is that People who grow up in the Chabad system, when they get to 13, 14, 15, right, and their uh, facial hair starts coming in, they just grow out their beards, you know? And many of them have beards and long beards even. And, you know, in a, in a very um, westernized, secular society that we live in, sometimes that's, that would be a challenge to distinguish yourself in, 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 in such a way. And the reason why, or I think, I, I would like to suggest a reason, why they're able to do that without self-consciousness and with confidence, and that they do it at all, at all is because that relationship with God and the community and the truth is there in the most concrete way. So they know where they live. They live in Hashem's palace. That's what the world is. They live in Hashem's palace. So why? What, I have to be self-conscious about my tzitzis hanging out? This, this world belongs to Hashem. It doesn't belong to you, Joe Blow, walking down the street. You know, so I'm wearing Hashem's uniform in Hashem's palace. So, is there an issue? Excuse me, is there an issue? There's no issue. I'm wearing what I'm supposed to be wearing. You know, so, but, but how do you get there? It's got to be so real and, and, and they do it through Abbas Yisrael. So, um, so if, if I could make a practical, without just making a list of criticisms, if I could make a, a practical suggestion to the yeshiva system, I would say a couple of things. One thing I would say is, 
that there must be chesed projects. There must be chesed projects, kindness projects, where people are doing, and preferably not just in the classroom, in the community, so that, because if they're just doing it in the classroom, they understand that it's going to people who are more needy than them, but it's still an abstraction because they're not seeing it, you know? So whatever that can be, and by the way, it can, be any, it can be raking leaves on the street, it can be planting trees, it can be painting over graffiti. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that uh, younger children can't, can't hold on to. You know what I mean? Or high school kids. It's got to be chesed, and that's got to be not extra credit. It can't be extra credit. It's got to be, no, that is what you're coming to school to do. Right? And, um, yeah, so that's, that, that's, that's a big thing. That's a big thing right there. Do you want to say something? No. no okay. Well, yeah. you know what? What about teaching the kids um, and Right. But, but, but that's what I'm saying, that, that, that that's hard to do. That's hard to do. And when you're in a relationship, then it becomes easy to do because you know God is there. See, the thing is, is that, you know, like in, like, corporate retreats and things like that. They have like this trust game, which is fall backwards and someone's going to catch you, but you have to trust that someone's going to catch you. And then you fall backwards and then someone catches you and then you go, okay, you feel, you feel better, right? But, but the thing is, is that we, we want to get into a relationship where I don't have to wonder if I'm going to be caught. If I fall backwards, of course I'm going to be caught. In other words, if what I'm trying to do is to, I'm trying to tell you that if you teach a relationship, if you teach people how to be in a relationship, you don't have to teach emuna, you don't have to teach faith, because you're already in a relationship with that person. Because so much of the hallmark of faith is that that, that person is there to begin with, or that Hashem is there to begin with, and that Hashem will take care of me. But if I'm in a loving relationship with Hashem, of course Hashem is there, and of course Hashem is going to take care of me. So in other words, it's, you, you, you don't even have to teach Amuna. Amuna will be the logical outgrowth of that relationship. And then, of course, you can teach various things within Amuna. I mean, I'm not saying neglect their subject. I'm thinking really a lot about like, the whole Tefillah aspect. Uh-huh. Okay, so let me just address tefillah for a moment. To me, to me, tefillah is really secondary. It's really secondary. And I think, you know, you know, it's almost like, um, it's almost like people, people fall into a trap in terms of becoming happy. Okay, here's a, a big happiness trap, okay? They go like this. Mm, something's bothering me. Something's bothering me. What is it? I have to find the thing that's bothering me. And by the way, this is not necessarily a bad thing to do, but it can be a trap, is what I'm saying. And then they go, okay, and they, they're, they're, they're working on the things that are bothering them, and they, they, what is it that's missing? What is it that's missing? And they're just, and that becomes the whole focus of, 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 the, of, 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 of their thoughts and things like that. And it becomes very, very negative because a person just orients themselves to what they don't have. 
instead of being actively engaged in life, what I do have, what's here now, what I can be doing, what I can be doing for other people, they get into the trap of being living inside their own heads. Instead of breaking through and being in relationships and helping out. And you know something? You don't know what to do with yourself. You know how many things there are? You know how many people are in need out there? Go to Tamche Shabbos. Load boxes of food for people who don't have... There's so, go to a soup kitchen. I mean, to sit around and to think, what is it that... What am I missing? And this and that. I'm not trying to make fun. But I'm saying that it's the wrong approach. The right approach is to be actively involved in a relationship and in chesed and getting outside yourself. Now, why am I bringing that up in, in, terms, of, in terms of tefillah? Because there's a whole field of, of how, can I help, how can I improve my davening? How can I improve my davening? I think that the whole subject on some level is a mistake. What do I mean by that? If you have a relationship with God, it's 24-7. How often do you quote-unquote daven? Exactly. Okay. That's, that's what it is. The way to solve tefillah, and when I'm talking about tefillah prayer, I've got heavy quotes around it. I'm talking about the Shmona Esrei, right? The davening sections during the day, which take... If a person does them, how long do they take, really? A few minutes, maybe an hour, maybe a, you know, maybe a half an hour, maybe, you know, mincha. You can knock off a mincha in three minutes, right? If you know how to daven shmona esrei, you can do mincha in three minutes. I'm, I'm not making a joke right now. You know, so, I mean, how much of the day is really tefillah? So I'm saying, if a person is focusing on, well, tefillah really is my main connection with Hashem. All right. All right, already they're on the wrong path. I mean, that person already, okay, wait, come over here. What, what, what are you writing down? The word F? You're giving me an F? Yeah, I just gave you an F. Because you just started off with a completely mistaken premise. Right? Tefillah is your main moment where you're connecting with Hashem. You already didn't get it. You already didn't get rule number one, foundation number one of all of Torah and Judaism. If you think that tefillah is number one. Unless you want to tell me that your, your entire day is a tefillah. But then we've got to make a distinction between the formalized tefillah and, and, and all the rest. Because David Amelech says, I am a prayer. Meaning that I'm walking around in a state of prayer. And how do you do that, by the way? If someone walks by you in a wheelchair, or walks by you in a wheelchair, that sounds like a contradiction. If someone comes past you in a wheelchair, as you pass them, Right afterwards, you're davening to Hashem. I'm being very real right now. Please, Hashem, heal that person. And may it be for the good. Right? For all of Israel. Right? For the whole world. Right? Someone walks by, and you know, oh, that person wants a baby. That person wants to get married. That person's having trouble with Parnosa right now. You walk by them, whatever it is, you're already in a state of prayer. Please, Hashem, I know that person is in need of X, Y, or Z. Please, God, grant it to them. You're innocent. You hear a siren, for sure. Anyone who hears an ambulance has to pray on the spot. Has to pray on the spot. Fire engine, ambulance, please God send salvation. Right? Has to. I mean, that's the voice of the person who's in trouble. That's what that siren is. You can hear their voice from the burning apartment, God forbid. That's what that siren is. That's the voice of the person in trouble. You're going to hear someone crying out from their apartment that's on fire and you're not going to pray for them? 
Right? So it's being in a state of prayer. It's being in the state of, and here's the key word, I don't know if I used it yet, dvekas. Dvekas is the key word, and it's amazing that, that, that it's not used more. Or sometimes you hear it's dvekas kite. Sometimes you hear it said like that. That's the cleaving to Hashem. That's the relationship. That's what it is. And if a person understands that that's the formulation, then to feel you had a good Shemon Esrei, you had a bad Shemon Esrei, Mazel tov, either way. It doesn't matter. Because that's probably, what, 1% of your talking to God during the day? 2-5% of your talking to God during the day? Hopefully it went well. And believe me, if you did it, if you're doing it during the day, then when it comes time to the tefillah moment, then it's just going to be, oh, okay. You know something, you know, you know, you can be, imagine you, you, you go out and you're spending the day with someone, right? Who you're close to, right? And you go to the mall, right? You're rushing to this store, you're rushing to that store. Okay, what, what sizes are, whatever. You're, you're, you're finding the right size, you're talking to the clerk, do you have this in, in blue instead of red? Do you have this in a children's size instead of this size? Is this on sale? Is that on sale? You're rushing store, 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 everything like this. And then you go and you sit down with the person and you have like a, a cup of tea or whatever it is and you go, oh, we've been rushing all day together. Let's just take a moment. Uh, yeah, what do we do? What do we do today? What do we still have to do? That's the tefillah moment. <laughs> do you understand? Because you're with Hashem all day during all of your activities. Then when it comes time to the Shemon Esrei, then it's just like, ah, let's just sit down for a moment. Or you're standing up, but you understand. Let's just sit down for a moment, God. Okay. All right, thank you. You got me to the store. <laughs> you got me that sweater. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Now, what do we need to do still? Okay, I still got to do that project. Got to finish that thing. Right? And that's what tefillah is. That's what tefillah is. It's not a substitute for the relationship. If I have to sum it up. It's not a substitute for the relationship. Alright, so let's just bring it all home. Just wrap it all up. We began with the question of Reb Shlomo or the observation of Reb Shlomo. So deep and beautiful. And what Reb Shlomo was able to do with one line. Do you see how we, we, we've been discussing this for about an hour now? And we, I'm sure we haven't even covered it all. What he said in one line. He said, if you want to know what the test of how much you were forgiven on, on, on Yom Kippur is, the test is, how at home do you feel in the sukkah? Okay? So, so the sukkah is the hug. If you're not standing there set stiff as a board, right, when you're getting hugged, but you're hugging back because you're in a relationship, because Yom Kippur was not just an accounting ticking off of good and bad and good and bad and good and bad. It wasn't just in your head. It wasn't just tree of knowledge level. It was tree of life level. It was, I've been estranged and I'm running back and I'm hugging back and I'm so glad to see you and I'm so glad that things are good again. And now, Hashem invites you into His home, and you're in His home, and you're in the sukkah, and you're feeling good, and then the, res- the relationship is restored. And I promise to tell you the historical basis of this, so let me just say that very quickly. So the Vilna Gon brings us, okay? Which is that, why is sukkah, remember, sukkah is 
remembering how we dwelled during the 40 years in the desert. Okay, that's what the sukkahs are. It's a remembrance for Egypt, okay? So if that's the case, it really should be, this is a famous question in Halakha, by the way, it really should be in the springtime because that's when we left. Okay? So make it in the springtime. Okay? So why is it now after Yom Kippur? It's a very, this is a famous question in Halakha. Okay? At least a thousand years old. And the answer the Vilna Gon gives is a fantastic answer, and you'll see how it sums all of this up, okay? It's because when we made the Cheta Egel, which was right after we left Egypt, right? That's 50 days after we left Egypt at Mount Sinai, Shavuos, right? 40 days after we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, we made the golden calf, the Shechina left us. God's presence, his revealed presence, left us. Okay? When did it return? It returned on Yom Kippur. Okay? Because on Yom Kippur, remember, when the, when the sin of the golden calf happened, Moshe Rabbeinu broke the tablets. That was why he broke the tablets. Okay? When do the new tablets come down? which said the exact same thing as the old tablets, guys. You know? Letter for letter. It was, it, was, it, was the same, it was the same tablets. Okay? There was no new tablets. Okay? If you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> it's the same tablets. Okay? When did, those, when did those come down? On Yom Kippur, the Day of Forgiveness. Okay, that's when God forgave the sin of the golden calf. And then what happened? Then what happened? We started to build the Mishkan. We started to build the holy tabernacle in the desert. And the Shekhinah returned. And the return of the Shekhinah after Yom Kippur was what? The restoration of the relationship. And that was Hashem's divine hug back, saying, I forgive you. Right? So, okay, we'll stop there.